The building blocks get you to a 6 out of 10. It feels like you need the building blocks in place. To go from 6 to 10, it's all mental. Hello, it's Andrew May and welcome to another episode of the Strive Stronger podcast. Today's guest is a former New South Wales, Tasmanian and Australian representative cricketer. He's an author, podcaster, proud father and husband turned combustible coffee pod tycoon. The left-handed opening batsman has successfully made the transition from professional athlete to co-founding one of Australia's most innovative environmentally sustainable businesses. It's called Tripod Coffee. Ed is no stranger to the microphone hosting the podcast series Scaling Up, which gives incredible insight into what it takes to scale a business to hundreds of millions in revenue. It's one of my favourite podcasts. Ed is part of the investment team at TDM Growth Partners. Apart from all of that, He's my regular Bondi CrossFit and swimming buddy. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Maisie, thank you for having me. It's nice to be able to be here. I mean, you've been a great mentor for me over the years. So to be able to hopefully give back some of my learnings that, you know, maybe even you've passed on through the years, I do need to flag something up front. They're compostable coffee pods, not combustible, because oh. if they were combustible and you put a combustible coffee pod into your machine, it would explode. And so I hope everyone's putting them in their compost bin and not needing a fire hydrant to uh, put them out. This podcast is all about being authentic, so let's leave that in, Wizard, and people can laugh <laughs> at my muck-up of the word combustible versus compostable. Thank you, Ed. When I think about you, I think of three Cs. At least. I, I think about cricket, coffee and capitalism. We're going to talk about that. Capitalism. <laughs> uh, but before we do that, let's let the viewers know a little bit more about you for those watching on video, those listening on audio. How did you meet your wife? Wow, that is a, a great place to start. Uh, as you know, Maisie, there are a few things more valuable in anyone's life than friendship and love. And it's a story of both, really. Uh, you and I were hanging out one summer. How, did, how long do you want this to be? Because I've got the long version, the short. I'll give you the Twitter version. We were hanging out one summer. I was lamenting the lack of single girls in Sydney. And your sister was there. And she said, I, I know a, a bird that, you know, might maybe spark a little bit of twinkle in your eyes, oh, you know, pass a number on. Anyway, your sister kindly arranged a blind date uh, with my now incredible and beautiful wife, Virginia, uh, and we are eternally grateful to the May family for, for the introduction. I think Sarah said to me, it's a really nice guy. Should I set him up with my friend, Virginia? I actually think I said no. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's, he's focused on cricket, but look, he's a good guy. Exactly. Go and meet him. And uh, wonderful, wonderful life story from that. So big shout out to Sarah. Now, what I really like to get our, our listeners across is how are our experts, subject matter experts, you fit into a bunch. It's hard to categorize you. A slushy. You're slashy. Yeah, you're a former elite athlete. You're a businessman, and you are a subject matter expert as well. And you tweet and podcast and write and everything. So, how do you start your day? Uh, I generally start with exercise. For me, it's just such a great release. I spent well 16 years professionally, and many more years before that honing an elite craft, that being cricket. And part of that is physically preparing yourself to play cricket, the game, as you, when well, we were at the forefront of it uh, as one of the strength and conditioning coaches, the game changed. Did and I, I just put out witches and witches hats? Mark Wall said to me, put out witches hats, gives it bibs and drinks and then basically F off. There we go. I mean, I, I was the next generation of, you know, ha having to actually provide some athleticism to the game. And so anyway, the, that has provided such a great 
release for me over many years to then transition out of sport. The one thing that I committed to myself was to ensure that I didn't look up in five years' time and I was overweight, depressed, um, not enjoying missing exercise. And so I commit to a morning exercise routine. Lots of people love meditating. Lots of people love doing yoga. For me, it's, it's more about really making sure that to be mentally fit, for me, I need to be physically fit. Something when you, when you explain that as well, just the thought bubble had in my mind, wasn't even in my notes, you don't identify yourself as just a cricketer. When did that start? Because it's interesting how you explain that, right? When I was an elite athlete, whereas a lot of elite athletes retire, they're the cricketer, they're the netball, they're the rugby league player. How is that different for you? Well, we could really dig into this uh, and and this is a a deep passion of mine around the transition of out of sport and I was lucky enough to play for for 16 years full-time but transition really scared me. It did from the moment that I thought maybe the end was coming to the time I retired and that was about five years but more it probably stems from uh, ensuring some kind of mental health while I was playing and, and mental health in sport is now a very uh, in vogue topic and, and, and rightly so but that doesn't mean the problems didn't exist uh, for that first generation of, of professional sports people and so I found out probably at 24, 25 that to decouple my cricket uh, performance with my value or self-worth that I was ascribing to myself at any one time was the only way I could be mentally healthy. Opening the batting is a bloody luckless task. You have five good days a year at best. You have five good days a year and you're a legend, 500s or you know five great wins for your team. It's a hard task and most usually ends in some kind of failure. And so... With that framing, if you are only judging yourself by how many runs you get or how many wins the team is having, you tend to fall into this uh, very desperate and dark spiral of, of poor mental health hygiene. And so for me, it was about decoupling the cricket and my identity as a person. And so I was very, uh, very sure that I wanted to study outside of cricket and I, and I did that twice um, through my career successfully. I was very sure that I wanted other interests away from cricket. And so, you know, you mentioned writing a book or starting a business. They were all things to ensure that my identity just wasn't, you are the cricketer and once cricket finishes, you fall off a cliff. And so it's kind of been trying to manage this mental health, not just while I was playing, but through transition as well. There's parallels for small business owners. You're the entrepreneur. You're the coffee barista. You're the flower shop guy. Yeah. Corporate world, I see it massively in executive level. You're the partner, you're the executive, and suddenly you're not, and people fall really hard. Yeah. You're 24, 25. I'm curious about, because I knew you throughout that whole period. We didn't really have a, we had some deep talks, but mm. we didn't talk about transition. How did that come about? Did you see some players around you fall hard? Did you have some mentoring from your dad, from yeah. your parents? From, how did that evolve? I think there are two two things. One, first and foremost, family values is so important here. And so when I said to my dad that I wanted to be a cricketer, and this is a guy that has made his own career and worked for himself and a very business-minded family, it was almost, I mean, great excitement and support, but his only words of advice was, son, get an education. Whatever you do, 
I, I would find it hard to support you if you if it was education or cricket. He said you need to blend both because you never know when you're breaking a leg. You need a backup plan. Don't put all your eggs in the same basket. So uh, good, solid, fatherly advice. But that stayed with me and it, it was really important you know, and that wasn't at 21. He told, that was at 14. When I, you know, of 13, where I was like, "Oh, Dad, I think I want to be a cricketer." You know, every kid's dream is like, "Mate, there have been 390 people ever in the history of the game to play professional cricket for Australia. The odds are against you. I'll support you, but whatever you do, you need to finish university." So it was kind of interwoven at an early age. Secondary to that was I saw a lot of people. I mean, sadly, I would have played with I don't know, let's say 200. Uh, cricketers are, over the years, I, I could count on one hand people that I would say transitioned well. And by well, I mean they, don't, they, they get a job but they don't find their next passion and their happiness uh, suffers because of that. So it's not necessarily financial distress they find themselves in. Initially, it's just everything that they have devoted themselves to over a long period of time dissolves and their identity, as we just discussed, dissolves with it. And so having seen those five people, I tried to kind of weave through what the common denominator for their success and happiness was and it came down to education and balance. You're even deeper than I thought, Edward Cowan. And and when an athlete retires, they don't get the hit when you are out in front of a stadium, oh, especially if you're playing yeah. a test match over in the UK. You've got tens of thousands of people. You've got the bugle. You're at the MCG. Yeah. Like It is iconic grand final, AFL grand final, and the opening day of the Melbourne test match. I mm-hmm. get goosebumps just being in the crowd. Let yeah. alone you were one of those people who walked out there, 100,000 people yelling, and then the following year, nothing. Yeah, and my mental attitude to transition was it's a five-year, it might be a 10-year journey. It's not now you're a cricketer, now you're doing something else. It's like I'm actually giving myself permission to be in transition. I'm in no rush. I'm going to go back to basics, build up my foundational skills to attack my next passion and career, and that might take just like cricket took 20 years to be an expert, it might take 20 years. So many people come out of sport at the top of the mountain and think that they get to paraglide to the next mountain. Realistically, you get to go to the base of the next mountain with a whole heap of great climbing skills and tools to get up the next mountain quicker, but you still start at the bottom. And so to give yourself that permission helps, but in terms of not getting that dopamine hit of playing in in front of 100,000 people, I don't search for that anymore. It was almost a a compartmentalisation of that was that life. If you are looking for that hit, you will never, ever find something as exhilarating as walking out to bat at the Boxing Day test in front of 100,000 people. What about training with me on a Thursday at Bondi? That's fun, uh, <laughs> no doubt, but it's not so it, – Give that the answer it deserves. But it, <laughs> I'll do, I, I don't have many shots in my armory, so I'll just knock it for a single. But, it, it again, it's the psychology of if I'm constantly looking for that, I will never find it. And so why would I even bother – go searching for something as crazy as something that only 400 people have experienced in, in an entire generation. If I was going to do the traditional podcast interview about you at cricket, I would ask you about at 14, scoring, I think, a double century, playing for New South Wales, playing Australian under-19s, making you debut for New South Wales where I first met you when you were 19. But people can Google that. Yeah. I want to talk about your aversion to baggy greens and baggy blues. Okay. Do you want to start on the green or the blue? You're, you're the host, man. Test match, 2005, Australia versus Pakistan. I was sitting in the crowd at the SCG. So was I. I know. We sent each other a text message. We were going to meet in the members bar and I suddenly look up a couple of overs later and complete the story. Well, I, 
I got a text message from a, a mutual friend of ours, Duncan, who who threw a, a lifeline out and said, oh, the 12th man is sick today. Do you want to be 12th man for the test match? And for those who aren't into their cricket, and there are plenty, I'm sure, listening, uh, the 12th man is the you know, the guy that or girl that carries out the drinks, acts as a little bit of a butler at times to the to the uh, the players, to, you know, runs out of towel, the drinks, the get me a new bat, can you change my grip? It's a bit of a thankless, to, it sucks basically. But it's usually the next person in the team. And so that person is usually, you know, a player of profile and prominence. Sometimes around the test team they get younger guys to, to help out and less so then as now. Um, anyway, I was, I was having a beer in the bar and the, the text came through, can you be 12th man? I said, absolutely. You know, I just made my debut for New South Wales. Go out, hang out with Justin Langer, Matthew Hayden, Ricky Ponting, Warney, uh, you know, the the who's who of the Australian cricket team uh, in their did absolute Did you think it may pomp. have been some of your mates at Sydney University who were known to play pranks? No, they did like playing a <laughs> prank on me. But in this case, it was the real deal. So anyway, I was, I was luckily... 12th man for the test match. And you get a baggy green? You don't officially. You get a whole heap of training gear. So what? So you fit in with the group. They give you all the all the paraphernalia, including, you know, like a, a training hat and a, maybe a, a, a wide brim hat to wear if you have to field. You didn't want to take that? No, I didn't because I, I hadn't earned it. I was the guy in the bar who was filling in for the guy who was sick. You know, like the the... For me, the symbol of the baggy green, and it could be anything that you dream of or desire in life, you want to earn that. And so for me, I was still on the trajectory of wanting to do that for myself. I wanted to play cricket for Australia. And so the symbol of the hat or the clay, you know, even the training shorts, people think, oh, I'll take the training shorts, wear them to the beach. People might think I'm playing for Australia. I was like, I don't want anything to do with that because for me that was just – such uh, a symbol of what was at the end of the tunnel and I was only at the start and so I, I needed to make my own journey worthwhile and, and for me that was just through the symbol of, of the gear. I purposely want to leave an open loop. We'll come back to when you did make your debut for Australia and when you got your baggy green. We'll talk about that experience and how you felt when you'd earned it. But in between that, you were given a baggy blue yeah. for New South Wales. I understand you walked back into Dave Gilbert's office, who was the CEO of New South Wales Cricket at the time, and handed it back to him. Well, you- same story. I was 12th man. My, my first game, I was the official 12th man. So rather than the guy in the, in the bar, I was the 12th man for the fixture and when you are 12th man, you do, of the official 12th man, you do get a hat. And I said, that for, you know, for all the same reasons I've just uh, responded with, let's wait till I actually, you know, get it good and proper. Admirable. Do you think there was anyone in cricket circles going, God, this guy, just take a hat. Come on, we're trying to give you some opportunities, Ed. Like, take it. I don't know. Fit it on, mate. Yeah. Go at home. Look in the mirror. Visualise. I'm not, I hated all I hated all that and the, and the full rigmarole around, uh, you know, people getting ahead of themselves. I don't know. I was, I was very much of the old school of, of having to earn your stripes. And you mentioned before your family values. It's obviously where that comes from. Yeah. Um, and you've openly spoken about this to me, but in the open domain, so I'm not going anywhere that I don't think I can. But you went to Cranbrook School yeah. and I heard you say on Shane Lee's podcast that you felt like you had to prove even more oh, that because you went to an elite Australian school – that it wasn't a, you know, a silver ride in or yeah. red carpet. Without doubt that, you know, cricket throughout Australia has historically been a, a working class sport and I think out of 
particularly in New South Wales, I think there's been maybe five in the history of cricket that have gone to private schools really? and played for Australia. Yeah, so our mutual friend Matthew Nicholson's one. I was going to say, um, There aren't many others, in short, and throughout, we're talking about over a sort of 100-year period. And the reason why is, you know, multifaceted, but one is you play school cricket till you're 18 and all the other cricketers are playing club cricket at 14. And so they get to play against men a lot sooner and their skills develop and they they toughen up. They have a hard exterior to the game. Their mental skills are f- far sharper than playing against kids your own age all the way through to your 18. And so on that, with, with that kind of context, when you come out of playing school cricket, you're assumed to be just a little bit softer, a little bit more susceptible to pressure, uh, maybe you know, do it for a couple of years and you can go to university or something else, you don't really, the perception is you don't really want it. Well, I really wanted it. And so I had to fight that perception hard uh, because it was certainly there. I think it made me a better cricketer for a whole range of reasons, but specifically I think it it was more around wanting to prove people wrong and different things inspired different people and it's not for everyone but I, I really took that challenge of I'm going to prove these people wrong and the same people that probably doubted me at 19 became my closest friends at 23 because it it, it took three or four years for them to realise actually that this guy's serious and and had seen the, the, the playbook from there, I guess. The psychological construct of what you're talking about is drive. When you have this innate like purpose, vision, mm. goal setting and you go about it, the street term is chip on the shoulder. Yeah. You know, you've got that burning desire. Yeah, F you, screw you, I'm going to do this. So it was different to a lot of players in your era and, and now who've come from a, a different beginning, right? They sort of wanted to prove themselves the opposite way. So it's yeah. quite a reverse approach that you had to take. It was and, I, and it evolved over time. I think that's what got created my little crack into earning my stripes for New South Wales. By the time I was up and going, my, my drive probably shifted and my attitude shifted to that of, probably, and you mature, of course, but it became very focused on I'm on a personal journey, I want to be the best cricketer I can be, whatever happens will happen, but I'm committed to my own personal improvement and high performance rather than I'm doing it because I want to prove you wrong and you wrong. It was actually about I'm just going to be the best I can be and and so be it. But it, it took a while to get there and, that, I mean, that was a nice state to end up in because you can't walk around with a chip on your shoulder forever mm. and and motivations change and development changes but I think that is a much more stable mental state to be in for long-term high Getting performance. Getting very deep into sports psychology, Ed, you can use that chip to get you going but it's got to be something, a higher purpose, Without a higher doubt. connection to keep you going. And you got going and you did keep going but there are a number of other names at the front of the order and I'm just going back using memory because you were getting starts and there are a lot of other opening batsmen, you know, six or seven into two doesn't quite work. So Greg Mayle, mm. uh, I don't know whether Matthew Phelps was still playing. Yeah. You had uh, Jakesy, Phil Jakes, the current coach at New South Wales Cricket, um, Phil Hughes. Yep. You had yourself. Usman. Usman Kawaja. Pete Forrest. Pete Forrest. Yeah, all players that essentially play for Australia. Ridiculous amount of talent. Mm. And I can remember you talking to me. I know you sought counsel with another mutual friend of ours, Simon Cadditch. I reckon you would have spoken to Farhard, the good man P. Farhard. You decided to do what was considered bold, brave. Some people, you know, other players and coaches, well, what is he doing? Who does he think he is? You packed up and you moved to Hobart, Tasmania. Yeah. Talk me through that process. Well, there were 
I think there was also another catalyst that you probably would have been hard. I mean, you remember it, but you, you probably hard to, to dig up from the memories was a, a really bad injury that mm. I didn't uh, didn't play for an entire season. So I was I forgot. I'd actually forgotten about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I was in the team doing really well. I then had you know, essentially ripped my big toe off my foot um, and didn't play for a season. All these other guys that you just mentioned. I went to the bottom of the queue and they jumped ahead of me. You're in and our little rehab school and Dave Misson. That's exactly Remember right. For, for 12 months. Misso's uh, theory was make rehab so bloody hard you want to get out on the field and do 400s. Which was fine when you could walk or run. But in my case, again, that psychology was hang on, hang about. And it was, it, was, it might have been the, the wrong one or the right one. It, turned, it was a good story in the end. But dropping to the back of the queue, I was like, hang on, I was up here and now all these other people are getting an opportunity. And, and you saw I was cricket, you don't want to give anyone an opportunity because mm. the, the depth of talent is, is so great. Anyway, it was like I was the, the guy at the station, the train was four stations along and I was nowhere. And so the opportunity to, to go to Tassie popped up and you're right, I, I needed some counsel from a whole range of people because I dreamt of playing for New South Wales. My family was here. I just met this wonderful girl. Uh, who was also living in Sydney, but there your, was his mates are here. All my mates were here. The, my the whole script, life. The script yeah, was happening. Absolutely. And then there was this opportunity and I had to balance, you know what, I have worked at that stage probably 10 years of full-time commitment from 14 to, well, you know, 26 at that point of wanting to be a cricketer. Here is the opportunity that you are waiting for. You can always come home, but do not leave this stone unturned. And I couldn't get that out of my mind because it didn't. I wasn't desperately unhappy in New South Wales, but what the setup in Tassie were a very strong team at the time. They just won the Sheffield Shield. They had a guy who was coaching in Tim Coyle, who was maybe the best coach in the country. Michael Divinuto was the batting coach. He batted left-handed, I batted left-handed. It just felt like there were pieces of the puzzle that were going to come together for me. And most of all, and I didn't realise it as much at the time when I made the decision, the joy of a fresh start Mm. where you have to go and prove yourself again, where that hunger can be reignited, where you have to go and there's no uh, preconceived idea of your personality. You can, not that you want to reinvent yourself, but... You're a very different person at 27 to 20 and I think that people were still seeing me as the 20-year-old in New South Wales, the up-and-comer, the rising star, and I wanted to be the guy. And so it was just a, a wonderful opportunity to, sort of, you know, clean the decks, so to speak, and go and be my own person, take my new girlfriend, now wife, uh, down and, and start a, a new life. Mm. Uh, rebrand is a word we yeah. use often in business. Uh, when I was athlete, Ed, I, I came back as Teddy. Yeah, when, when you say that <laughs> as an athlete, we go, oh, don't athletes use that. But you did, you did that. And also, don't uh, wipe out the environment. You know, I lived yeah. in Tasmania for five or six years as an athlete and it's beautiful, it's pristine, and it's like a big, friendly community. And and it is, it's different to living in the eastern suburbs in Sydney. That's what I, I loved the most was the sense of community and the culture that that team had bred and there was no... Um, no secret to their success was built around the, the people and the culture of, of that team was around togetherness. New South Wales, highly talented, highly fragmented, would win occasionally but not in a durable manner. Tasmania, population 500,000 people winning national titles every second year for the next five years. Mm. That speaks to the people inside the room uh, and, and their ability to manage talent, 
the interpersonal relationships in the team, people moving in the same direction, all the things that we love and talk about in business apply to sports teams just as much. That cohesion was high, great leadership. So it became a team that I just fell in love with and it was such an easy place to live. There was no stress, there was no distraction. Uh, I was there to play cricket and make friends and, and my family became my teammates. Cricket, sport, life has evolved a lot the last five or ten years around mindset. Uh, back when you started, the, the era before you, you, you do cricket and then the initial day Stumper would say to me, Steve Rexon, it gave me an amazing opportunity to work with you and a whole lot of players. Uh, stay until September, October and Maisie, what are you doing? I'll come back next off-season and it slowly changed. So now we know to develop yourself, you can train your craft you can train for cricket or you can train your job, small business. You can train your body, strength and conditioning, fitness. You can train your mind. And, and people leave that mind one. Often it's out of desperation or it's often out of fear or it's often when there's a problem. But you dug into that. And actually you dug into that more than I realised and I've found this out post-career. So I need to flag that because when we were working together, it was very much the second one fitness focused. So I want to know, what did you do to train your inner game, to train your mindset? Yeah. Uh, well, I, f- I feel like, and and to answer the question, I'll come back to the specific answer, but it feels like you need the building blocks in place and then th- there's a huge leap that takes place. To go from the building blocks get you to a 6 out of 10, to go from 6 to 10, it's all mental. And so... And they come in incremental gains. The building blocks can come in big chunks, but the mastery from eight to 10, you really need to have been at a six for a while and then you chip away and there's no exponential ramp up. So just to give that framework mm, of how I thought framework. how I thought about it. So at 24, 25, when we were working closely together, it was about being physically fit, toughening up, making sure my hunger was kind of devoted in, in the right mental energy. But then I began to realise that the big improvement was was coming in and around my own mental capability. And I, I'd always had the mental capability to bat for long periods of time. But what you get exposed to over time playing elite sport or, you know, being a high performer in any uh, field is how to deal with pressure and how to make sure that you can perform at a consistent level day in, day out. Because there's no there's no good being the guy who's good two days of the year. Because one, you're probably not on the team, and two, you're no good to your team if you are in the team. And so this aspect of how am I going to make sure that my best days are good, but my worst days are not terrible. And so I'm going to make sure that I'm moving up and to the right in slow increments, but in a band. And so I'm not hot and I'm not. And that for me was about finding routine in, in my own mental game. It was about understanding my reflections and I, I, I began keeping a, a batting diary and understanding deeply my own emotional skill so set. someone who's not familiar with the term batting diary, it's a journal. Like it's a journal, journal yeah, journal. yeah. But not a, not a gratitude journal. It was, uh, I, I would call the cycle being, it was key to my preparation. Who am I playing against? How are they trying to get me out? Um, right, so you go through that same I'd process. I'd go through the same process every time. And then I would, on the, the morning of the day, I would reflect very quickly on all those things that I'd put in place for the week. And it would also shape your training for the week. You know, I'm facing this person. so. But that would all go in the journal. Then I would go and perform and then I would reflect on that performance. How did I feel um, mentally, physically, what I ate, 
how I slept, um, you know, started tracking those things. But more importantly, how well did I measure up to the things that I said I was going to do? I said that I wasn't going to cover drive Maisie bowling right arm off spin and I got caught cover driving Maisie right arm off spin. <laughs> that, that's a fundamentally flawed story <laughs> for anyone who has seen me in the nets, but, but keep going. But the, So the line would then go through, mate, you committed to not doing X and you did X. You need to get better. What? Okay, well, let's dig into that. What were the things that led you to making that mental error having committed to X and doing it. And so you be- the patterns start emerging. Did, did you work that out yourself? Yeah, I did. As you were saying that, and you know now I'm back in sport, yeah. loving it, doing mental skills. And we look at at least 12 essential mental skills. You can train an athlete or train a corporate worker or a small business owner. It starts foundation, so storytelling. Yeah. Do you have the ability to navigate your inner voice? As you're saying that, check. The next one is self-identity. Are you more than just a cricketer? Do you have a higher level vision purpose? Check. Do you have the ability to regulate or replenish and utilize energy? Check. So they're foundation skills. You're saying this stuff and it's 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 very evolved sports psychology. You get up to the next level. Do you have the ability to control your breathing? You're doing it now. You did it before we started the podcast. Do you do so can I just interrupt you there? Yeah, yeah. That is the that was the most important thing I ever learnt around dealing with any kind of pressure on the cricket field. And so my entire batting routine, and by batting routine I mean the bowler is running in, so you know, so he's running in, wanting oh, to knock a ball up in your chip. Exactly, and I would have the same number of taps, the same number of breaths every single time the bowler would run in, and you How would, many? it would be three taps, three breaths. So. Yep. Slow? Yeah. Show me. What does it look like? Well, <laughs> I'm kind of out of the game now, but we'll keep the story moving because for me that was something that I could innately control every single ball. That is mm. something that I – what I couldn't control is what came out of his hand, but that was such a calming thing that would ensure that you were making the best possible split-second decision. If you're holding the bat tense and breathing quickly and shaking the bat quickly, it's like – you know, you are. You might get an outcome, but you're not going to get it consistently. And so it would always be, how can I make sure that I'm optimizing for consistency mm. and performance? And so breathing was by far the most important thing that I learned to do when I was under pressure. Wow. Uh, mindfulness, check. Mindfulness is being present and non-judgmental. So you're not thinking what the ball is going to do, you are reacting to it. You're looking at controlling nerves, Yerkes, Dodson, inverted U hypothesis. Then we get up into the really elevated sports psych stuff and this is where it often goes wrong because we go too high before, as you said, you get the base levels, imagery, visualisation, drive, which is goal setting and vision. And then you're looking at confidence, which is the higher self-efficacy, Albert Bandura, where you are actually controlling this. That's really advanced to work that out for yourself. Well, I don't know, it, it was kind of self-taught uh, knowing basically that I could recreate patterns, you know, like yeah. so it's, it's kind of how my brain works. I would realise what worked on any given day. Well, if that worked on any given day, why wouldn't I try and repeat that and see if that works again? Oh, you wouldn't believe it. It worked again. And all of a sudden you build your own mental model as to what works mm. and not everything works for everyone. And so what became really positive, it becomes a self um, enforcing loop as well because you perform well, you, you gain more confidence. You understand better what led to that performance so you perform better, gains more confidence. Like a, a, confidence capability. Confidence capability but it came down to this how well am I preparing, how well am I performing but the most important thing of, of that completion was the reflection. Mm. 
And to have the ability to hold the mirror up, you know, with absolute certainty on any given day and and be honest with yourself and to reflect positively as well as negatively to understand how that can then, you know, feed back into your preparation performance. Because the worst thing you can do is be constantly negative with yourself and the, the self-talk can really, it's a doom loop from there. So Don't nick the ball. Don't, that's right. yeah, Don't so, get out. So, so frame it as, well, I didn't do this. I, I would always, and we're, we're kind of diving deep, I would always say, well, here are the things I did wrong, but here are the things that I'm learning from that and committing to from here. So it always have the positive angle in the end, even though there was a negative bent to it to start with. You know, at times I'm quick to stir you and give you a hard time. So I need to balance that out, but I'm impressed that you did that. And I, I didn't know that you did it that day. It was, it was the, I would say I was by no way the most talented player, but I, I worked out a formula for my own mental health and my own mental performance, I think far faster than people my age and that's probably why I progressed. What's coming out, there's a threat. It's not just doing, it's actually looking at what you need to do next. So oh. you're always looking a couple of years ahead whereas sometimes in business we just are so in the moment, we don't think ahead. So that, that's why, I mean, this is slightly contrarian, I don't love goals because they always feel finite and so it was always – Oh, sorry, I don't like goals and reflection processes on 12 months. What are your goals for the season? I was like, no, I want to reflect every day. What do I want to achieve today? What is my job today? And at the end of the day, I want to reflect on whether I've achieved that or not. And if I haven't, why not? Because it's going to go into my list tomorrow. And so particularly in the corporate it blows my mind having now been in the corporate world for three years that we go on these 12-month reflection cycles and let's set goals for the year. I'm like, whoa, can't we just be super focused on the incremental gains we can get every day? I know if I'm the best person at work every single day, then you're going to get a hell of a lot out of me. Um, and so let's find ways of making sure that everyone's optimizing for the team on every single day, not this kind of huge performance reflection. We're going to close the open loop when you did get your bag of green because our listeners will be going, oh, I want to hear the story. But before we do that, to balance intensity, you need to have a bit of playfulness, fun and joy. And here's a passage from your book, In the Firing Line. Intensity at training was lifted significantly, purely through the presence of Ricky Ponting, who will be playing the next two Sheffield Shield games with us. It can be an awkward introduction when one of the big boys enters the change room. You throw out a hand and say, hi, but how do you respond to, hi, I'm Ricky? You know full well who it is. You are a little excited by the whole moment and you don't know how much you should roar out the conversation. Is that Ricky with a Y or an IE? <laughs> you clown. Well, thanks for buying the book. Um, I think you gave it to me at your uh, book yeah, launch. Yeah, probably. I think everyone got a free copy in the end. Um, look, at the, at the end of the day, it's like anything. If, you, if it's worth doing, you need to have a smile on your phone. I know you're being playful, but you need to be enjoying what you're doing. If you desire to be the best cricketer that you can possibly be but do not enjoy that journey, can I suggest you do something else? Because the the emotional toll it takes to get to the top of any given profession is not worth it if you can't do it happily. Absolutely, absolutely. Baggy Green, when did you get it? Who presented it to you? How did you feel? Uh, <laughs> rapid fire. Dean Jones presented me my Baggy Green Boxing Day Test 2011. Uh, it, it was a very strange and emotional moment 
because it's been I, a big build up. You just kept saying no. Like they wanted you <laughs> yeah, to have a they wanted well, you to they, have they, a hat, Edward. Yeah, this this was mine to keep forever, and they can't take it away from you. But the emotion was, it wasn't about. I had this deep sense of gratitude for everyone. I'll probably tear up talking about it. That contributed to my journey from the people that threw me balls from a young age to professional hour after hour, day after day, to dad that would drive me from, you know, Sydney to Dubbo for a game of cricket on the Sunday in the under-15s, all the people that for, for no yourself, Maisie, for no benefit other than to help me. And so I'd have all these um, sort of flashbacks and it was a wonderful moment because it was for them more so than it was for me. And I still, I mean, I'm getting emotional. Yeah, we got some tissues. Yeah, that's right. No, but it, because. But, but no, I, I love, I love I, seeing that and yeah. I love for those watching the video, you're standing and I'm sitting and you know, I feel like giving you a big hug and I will before we finish. It's one thing you taught me about, which we're going to tell the viewers, you know, share the love, men and women, have that physical contact. But I love seeing that change in physicality because you can have a conversation and just press play. Mm. You're living it. It, it, yeah. it was years of hard work. It was. You deserved it, it. it was. But I, I didn't. I didn't think whether I deserved it or not. It, it was more. So many people had sacrificed. So I'd sacrificed a lot, and I, I knew. I knew that. But for that, I got the reward. They didn't. And well, so no, the, no, 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 their, no, no. Their, their reward was investing in yeah. my journey, and I'm sure that was incredibly rewarding, but it's, it's, it's there, not there the There were so many people who were proud of you, and anyone who's involved in an athlete or if it's a business person or, you know, even someone who writes a book or does a song, there's other people who take pride seeing their friends, their colleagues do that. So there are a lot of people very proud, but uh, it was a big moment. Yeah. Well, and, and you're one of those people, so I'm, I'm sure you get it. Um but that, that, my overcoming emotion was actually of, of gratitude for other people. Let's have some coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not just have any coffee. Let's have some. Tripod coffee. Combustible coffee. There we go. Tripod. Yeah. How did that start? Well, I know you started it with Nathan. Steve. Steve. Casa. Molino. Catalino. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me, who did you start? Nathan, Nathan Catalano. Steve Casalino. Thank you. They're all part of the same. Right, this is your no story. Yeah. You tell me how it started. I think you were in Salamanca Square just drinking coffee, time in between cricket and bang. That's exactly. Oh, so part of, as, I, as we were discussing before, having something other than cricket and for me I'd kind of finished my study and I was kind of thinking, should I do some more study or I was like, bugger it, let's have a real life MBA and you, you, all these things you've learned throughout the years about business, why don't you put it in practice? And so it was. It kind of started knowing that, okay, I've, I've got probably 20 hours a week and what could I do as a bit of a side hustle on 20 hours a week? You can't build a software company on 20 hours a week, but you can you know, sell coffee online. This whole D2C model was really kicking off. You could have a third-party logistics company, so I don't need to pick and pack. Yeah, you can contract, get someone to contract roast for you, yeah, and you basically can kind of pull the pieces together and, and have a business without doing much on 20 hours a week. We were giving 40 between the two of us. We are opening the batting together at the same time for Tassie. So in between gardening and runs, you're building a coffee empire? Absolutely. Well, hardly an empire, but at the time, I mean, so the learnings of putting your money where your mouth is and having some skin in the game to try and build something from scratch, uh, it's it's an amazing experience. You cannot teach that. 
in a course. You cannot read that in a book. You cannot listen to that yeah. in a podcast. Yeah. So, oh, and we've, we're still on a wonderful journey, but the business has evolved dramatically. Uh, you know, it started to we're doing okay. I remember yeah, saying at QT Bondo a few years ago, yeah. when I go to make a coffee in the little machine, and there you are. Yeah, so well, it's a great, it's a great little business now. Uh, you know, so growing off a off nothing to. You know, we, we employ a couple of people and, you know, it's still much the same business model, but we're probably the, the largest environmental... Um, combustible. Com- <laughs> combustible. Wow. <laughs> Imagine the legal claims if we start blowing up people's machines. Um, but there are I mean, so many lessons. We could we could have a whole separate episode well, let, let's, well, let's pull out a few. Yeah. Uh, what have you learned running a small business that you didn't learn in sport? That's an interesting question because usually it's the other way around. What did you learn in sport that, that – Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's, we might ask that as well. No, because I think that that's, a, that's, that's obvious. Uh, that's, a, that's a really smart question. Uh, that it's harder than what it looks, that market size counts and every dollar – well, two, two other things. Everyone always wants a cut of the action – and margin matters <laughs> because uh, you can see great top-line revenue growth. I mean, particularly in a consumer-facing business, it's very different if you're trying to grow a software business. But in a consumer business, if you're not managing your cash flow and your margins accordingly, it's a pretty short business. You uh, don't have a coffee shop or a cart. You're selling direct. Correct, yeah. So I think I know the answer to the question, but I need to ask because COVID has impacted so many of our Mm. small business owners' lives. What did you see with COVID? How did it, first of all, impact revenue? How has it impacted the way you do business, the way you market business? Yeah. Uh, Well, the answer, I feel a little guilty giving this answer because so many people have struggled and have, you know, I feel like we're, we're in a far better place than we were our business you know, got massive tailwinds, uh, not only in the, you know, let's buy online category, uh, but also the work from home movement. And so selling a, a domestic uh, based consumable, uh, direct to the consumer was like a, it's like a tidal wave uh, pushing our business along. So I think last year we, you know, we were probably three times bigger than we were the year before. It was three, yeah. wow. What's the vision? With Tripod Coffee. Well, down we the had track. our strategy day uh, last Friday, actually. So I can't, I won't give too much away because we need to execute on it. But I'll if you're if you, no, if you, I mean, no, I'll, I'll answer it um, pretty specifically. If you think of what we're trying to, we're, we're selling um, coffee capsules, domestic armor. We've, we've had a Singapore office. We sell, you know, in different places in the world. We white label for Bluestone Lane in the US. You know, the, worldwide, there is a, a big market, but let's say domestic only. One thing that we've realised is that we Australia is a small market and we are then trying to take a slice of a very small market, that being those with Nespresso coffee machines. So how can we ensure that A, our current customers have a longer lifetime value, what can we upsell them, and B, you look at a business and I take inspiration from a business like Who Gives a Crap, who sell toilet rolls. Mm. Uh, An amazing business model. The most beautiful business model because everyone is a customer. I think you can say everyone goes to the toilet. Everyone goes to the toilet, um, but every, every, there, everyone is a potential customer. And, and I think for you to build a large digitally native consumer business, you have to have everyone as a customer. And so I think you'll start seeing Tripod trying to expand 
into a whole range of offerings that it's like, okay, what do we have permission to sell? We are one of Australia's leading environmental brands for those that are eco-conscious. What else can we sell, not only in the eco-conscious space, but the coffee space? And if you're selling people coffee, you may as well sell them anything else that they want to have at breakfast or, you know, in their pantry as well. Nice. Are you building to or are you scaling for continued growth or would you like to sell? And I ask that specifically because I've built and sold a few businesses and I think the only reason I did it was achievement because I was so focused on I thought the end game was I'd build a business that Accor or KPMG bought and then it's like, oh, shit, what do I do next? I'm going to build another one. Yeah, I'm in a bit of a different situation that it's not my full-time focus Mm -hmm. and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But, I mean, it is the full-time focus of, of many people. So I don't know the answer to that. I think we're still in scaling up mode and while there's so much white space for us to kind of capture and grow, you'd be silly not to grow into it. I'm motivated by building a big business, not by trying to sell it and make some money. Um, so I, I think it comes back to vision and purpose and you know, I enjoy the business building, not so much the achievement. Have you read the book Range? I have, David Epstein, great book, yes. one of my favourite. And when I talk to you and even more today, it's been great to just pull on that thread a little bit. Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours wasn't Malcolm Gladwell. He borrowed, stole the information from a guy named Eric Anders who did research on yeah. the Berlin Orchestra. And he didn't say 10,000 hours. Gladwell pick it, picked it up. Anders is actually really pissed that that's been used yeah. if you hear some of the podcast interviews with him. But Anders said it's perfect practice and some of the violinist was around 10,000 hours. That's where that went. I don't believe in 10,000 hours. If I look at you, you had experience, education, you studied because your dad said go play cricket but you got to study. Then you did the sport and you had knockback and hardship and you did your own you know, PhD internal mm. in sports psychology. Then you've gone out and started in small business and you've got a podcast we're going to talk about and scaling up and capitalism with TDM growth partners or you know, commercial enterprises. I think that gives such a broad experience and I think your podcast, which I do listen to, and you've got some great guests and some great people on it. I think what you've done with small business has given you a much bigger understanding to oh, ask the questions, damn. to go deeper and not just tick over the box and go, oh, you've got a unicorn, what's that like? I don't know. It helps you feel it. Yeah, well, without doubt. And even knowing, so we'll get to it, but my work at, at TDM is is about investing and, and helping businesses be best operationally as investors. And so just to know just basically what there are, what the scaling pain points can be or what are the answers for for that have worked for other people to put into practice but the whole range question is is fascinating i've always been a big believer in this i always mm. play I, I always played a win well sometimes two winter sports as well as cricket i played rugby at university even though i was not meant to because i was in the state cricket squad i i believe that it would be playing rugby back there. I don't, <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> Did anyone else know? <laughs> I don't think oh, so. Oh, there's a little um, uh, slip, isn't it? And so my point my, my point being I was always a big believer that it provided at the time I thought balance, but the science now actually tells you for, even from a sports development point of view from it teaches you mental balance, but in terms of the physical skills and the spatial skills of you don't want your kids specialising at thirteen. Seventeen-year-old uh, who's the former rock star who's got no identity oh, outside of being the rock goodness. star. So, like, and a, that is a bad cycle. And I'm now as a parent, see it real time. Mm. And people look at me square. I was like, you, 
you can't, little Johnny can't just play soccer on Saturday and Sunday. He's eight. How about he plays basketball, cricket, soccer, rugby? And I mean, the, the great case study for range is Roger Federer, who, you know, people can do their own research, but was just a wonderful, multi-talented sports person who loved tennis. And so the reason why he chose tennis was to love and the rest is history. And I think the lesson on that for a lot of business owners, they think, because there's this whole Gary Vayachuk, you know, hustle, hustle, hustle. And I think there's some great stuff about Gary via Vayachuk. But I think some people look at that and they just think it's about working 80 hours a week, not enjoying it, you know, got to do the grind. It's no, the no, worst. no, that's not fun. That's no. not life. That's not balance. Get some other skills. It's TDM. Tell me about TDM Growth Partners. Yeah. What is the business? The business was started by my brother 16 years ago. Is he um, the T, the D, or the M? He's the T, the, the D, and the M, Thomas Donald McKenzie. Is he? Yeah, I he thought, is. okay. Uh, so he started the business on the floor of his apartment. And he's obsessed. When you talk about passion, this guy is obsessed with investing. He gets up at four o'clock every single morning still to immerse himself because that's his quiet time because you know I've got three kids but he has for a, for a long time. Every day at 4 a.m. Every single day and but it's not work for him. It's a passion. Anyway, that he started this business because he um, and two of his great friends from uni since joined him not long after that, uh, Ben and Hamish. But they collectively at uni would always talk about running an investment firm and there was a better way of doing it. You know, all these firms set up with finite fun lives, they take institutional money, all the things that is wrong with finance. They're like, well, bugger that. Let's do it ourselves and do it differently. And so they set up a, a wonderful business model. It's an evergreen pool of capital. They they started small. They, um, you know, decided to real. One thing that they were obsessed with was the ownership mentality. You own one share of a business, it's the same as owning the whole business. You need to be thinking like an owner. And the, you know, so long-term horizons to invest in and, you know, the, the joys of, of compounding and compounding capital. You can go from a very small number to a very big number. And so they started with about a million dollars. It soon became 10 and they've now got one and a half billion under management um, and, you know, portfolio companies like Guzman and Gomez and- well, I've got uh, a few names here. Guzman and Gomez, yeah. Safety Culture, Culture Amp, Mind Body, Baby Bunting, ROKT, and the list goes on. Yeah. Or is it Rocked? Rocked. Wonderful business run by a guy called Bruce Buchanan uh, who started Jetstar in Australia and just is a fascinating, smart, accomplished person. Um, but what I've learned, I mean, so, you know, these guys, are, I've, I've learned so much in, in my three years and it's been amazing to see the business grow for the last 16. But being, what I've loved about it is the high-performing nature of not only TDM but the exposure to wonderful founders and CEOs and understanding how deep the crossover is between high-performance sport and high-performing cultures in the workplace. Mm. Well, your podcast, Scaling Up, this is how it reads – it has the aim of inspiring the next generation of local entrepreneurs. Scaling Up gives incredible insight into what it takes to scale a business. There's music behind this in your voice <laughs> as well, just so you can paint the picture. <laughs> From very small to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, hosted by Ed Cowan and supported by TDM Growth Partners. That's the official take. Yeah. But I just find it really good. Oh, and you've thanks, interviewed man. Paul Bassett from Seek. You've had Rick Stolomeyer from yeah. Body, Mind, Body. Mind, Mind Body. Amazing. Yeah. Didier from Culture Amp. The Guzmani Gomez. Like 
it's really compelling interviews. Well, I mean, the, the joy is in interviewing compelling people. It's bloody easy, as, as you probably know, just asking the questions. So to sit there and, and fire questions at Australia's greatest minds, people that have built, you know, billions of dollars of shareholder value, uh, but more importantly, the passion and purpose of building long, durable growth businesses and building them the, the right way. What you learn is that... You can build for success and short-term success. You can optimize for that, but to, that looks very different to building for long-term uh, success. And these, they, they want to build iconic companies of, of of this century, and to do that, it relies heavily around a core group of people that are on the same page from a beliefs, values, and cultural point of view. I'm sure there's some people listening to this go, "What is it? What is the secret to take my insert business name in insert category?" Mm to a multi-million, mm. hundreds of millions of dollars of business. What, what, what are, there's no secrets, but if you, with all your experience uh, working with your brother in the last sure. couple of years, the podcast, uh, your range, if you had to pinpoint on a few things, how well, would you like that? One is time. <laughs> be, be patient. Be patient. Well, I mean, there are so many of these stories and the, Rick's, the Rick Stolmeyer story is one of them. You know, for 10 years they were, it started in the garage in, out of Pismo Beach in California, selling CD-ROM software. Uh, now a uh, you know multinational, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of revenue based in the cloud. So businesses evolve if you give them the opportunity to evolve. So be patient. Be patient, but involved in the patience is being strategic as to what does it look like in twelve months, three years, five years, and let's really make sure that the right people are in the right seats on the bus moving in that direction because at the end of the day, it's up to the people who are executing to execute on that vision. And if there are the wrong people on the bus or in the wrong seat and you're not optimising for the people inside your business, then you've got no hope. Sport teaches us that. Every year in sport you'll have 15 to 20% of the roster out. So you know, the, the girl that was next to you in the locker room last year is gone. That keeps you on your toes. I think in the corporate world, especially small business, and we've had a, a few people no longer in our business, and it's hard, but sometimes you've got to make the decision. Rip the Band-Aid off. Absolutely. Rip and what the that does off. for the people that are there, it resets the culture, not as much as what you do, but also what you don't put up with. That's right. Well, I mean, the, the old adage, the, the standard you walk past to the standard you accept is so true. And so if it, it, as you know, uh, Andrew, it takes one person to be toxic, even in a, in a cricket team of 11, well, I suppose, I mean, ten. there are 10 great people and one toxic person. That toxic person will take the team down from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And so when you start dealing in larger organisations, that one person, their network can expand very quickly to that one person affects the performance of five. Mm. Those five affects the performance of five each. And all of a sudden the, the nature of compounding is half the business is disenfranchised, un, unemotional about the outcome and very quickly you've got an issue on your hands. And so to be able to, and, and we always manage, oh, they'll come good. It's like it's if you have some someone coaching, in your business that should, I've that's, known him for a long exactly time right. and he's going through a hard time and that, rip there's, it off, I agree. There's a way of managing that properly. But we'll probably have to go upstream and recruit for values, which is another different conversation for another day. So uh, values, clear values. Time, strategy, yeah. where does passion come in? Because when I listen to a lot of your interviews, you can just hear the founder, like Paul Bassett, worth 
hundreds of millions of dollars. He's talking like he's just started and jumping out of his skin. Yeah, like he's it's yeah. like he's a twenty two year old just started his first business. Without doubt, I would say I would say that is the number one common denominator for all the founders that I've been lucky enough to interview, and the CEOs, you know, the professional CEOs who are then custodians of, of you know, generally founder led businesses. Mm. It's that passion and drive, just the, the same passion that I had as a 20-year-old to be the best cricketer. These founders have this, and some of them are, I mean, it's probably redlining up against not psychotic but, you know, like obsessed, obsessed is probably yeah, Obsessive, yeah. I would say, some of them to say the least. Yeah, that, that's the probably a, a better word. And, and that has a, a light and a shade mm. to it, like every kind of... Um, high-performing trait and they, you know, they're trying to optimise for, for the light but there's always some shade. But the, the, the passion and drive to be a high performer and to build something spectacular. And so there are very few founders of billion-dollar businesses who are just happy doing their thing. Oh, maybe, you know, next year we could be a bit bigger. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm trying to build the biggest business in the world. But when you say spectacular, it's a very... It's a very emotive word. It's not about money with these founders. No, it's not about it's got nothing to buying do. It's the got waterfront, having the latest Range Rover Sport, having the you know, clothes, the yeah. bling. It's really doing something spectacular. It is. It's about impacting the world. And a lot of these founders have built these massive businesses but aren't very well. You know, like there has been no liquidity event of any significance. Their business might be worth 2 or $3 billion, but they along the way may have earned a million or two million, you know, like it's completely out of proportion. And so the the driving passion is the mission. Mm. And that mission as investors is what we focus on. If there's a founder or CEO that doesn't have that mission, it's, it's pretty clear that they're not the people for us. It feels like it's your future, like you've got it locked in. So it doesn't seem like it's, uh, I'll do it for another couple of years and leave. Is, is this charted out for you now or... In typical style, are you future-proofing for something down the track as well? And and if you are, we'll edit this out if your brother listens to it. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I always feel as though while there's growth and there's learning, you'd be crazy to, to do anything else. I think that the moment you stop learning, and it doesn't matter whether it's this job or the past job, or that's the moment you need to start thinking. I, I Again, I'm treating this as part of a, a building block to my future, whether that building block means I do another role at TDM or I am doing utilising the skills I'm learning now to add value to our portfolio companies somewhere else. But as soon as I stop growing and learning and there's no room to do that at TDM, I don't think there will ever be. I feel like it's my forever place, but I'm just saying, you know, that's my, my mindset is not I'm here forever. It's I'm here on a journey I want to keep delivering and I want to keep learning and the moment that stops happening, well, then, you know, that's time to kind of reassess. You know, I talk about the A-side and the A-side for those listening who had cassettes is your top hits. We've spoken about a lot of your top hits and you've got a lot. There's a big A-side. The B-side is when we flip the cassette over and talk about the hits that either haven't made it to the top or the challenging hits where we learnt the most from. I like that framework. Is that your own? It is. It is. Yeah. I and I can steal remember. it for the podcast. You might hear it on scaling You can, you can have it. Um, just to go that story a little bit because you asked the question, I had a, a slide up in my home on, on the computer. I was about to keynote that the first time and I had a cassette tape and Mickey, you know my daughter, 
this was a couple of years ago. She came and said, Dad, what's that? And she pointed out the cassette. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, what's that? I said, darling, that's a cassette. You know, when Daddy was your age, we had a cassette with an A side and a B side told her the story. And she looked at me and said, why didn't you just use Spotify? I'm like, why, why don't you go to your bedroom? You're grounded. You've made your dad feel really old. So flipping the cassette over, we spoke yeah. a little bit about your toe. Uh, going to Tasmania was challenging. And your personal life, I don't know whether you want to talk I'm, about it. I'm, I'm an open book. With, with Ginny as well. But Yeah, um, it, yeah also, I mean, the B-side, things that people probably don't listen to or hear that often to exactly do with my the life. The B-side is where you get your biggest growth. Your no, biggest of course. Learning. So, yeah. I mean, the, the big... Um, the big hits on my B side, obviously, my mum was very sick uh, for a long period of time while I was playing cricket, and she's sadly no longer with us. Um, that was, you know, a, a big thing to go through while you're. And I, it, I guess my my learning, not that you want to learn from someone's passing, but um, it certainly refocused me as to the importance of family. And when you're a 25 year old you know, alpha, trying to be an alpha male and you're trying to balance this, you know, emotional, your mum, you know, like it's it's hard to get that connection. You know, it's the age that they should be re-becoming your friend rather than your mum and so to lose her then was was really hard. Um, I've lost my train of thought momentarily. I'm sure it will come back. The I guess the other big learnings from that was dealing with guilt because I actually, I was living in, in Hobart. Mum was very sick in Sydney. And so a, a part of me, part of me was like, I'm chasing my dream over here. Mm. And I felt guilty that my mum was sick and dying in Sydney and I wasn't there with her. And so balancing that and almost trying to give yourself you know, the the headspace and permission to say, I'm going to try and balance these. I know what the outcome is over here on the left. I still need to be able to, I, I don't want to regret, you know, giving everything to mum. And I don't know if it was the right decision or the wrong decision, but it's the decision I made at the moment. And there was some guilt attached to it at the time, but living and learning through that emotion of guilt was, you know, something that um, I probably you know, would say is is in terms of B-side learnings, that's that's yeah. a big one. And I think it's important that we do talk about people's B-sides because if I just did your top hits, it yeah, could think be it's all rosy at and... risk of, yeah, you know, they had this life, did that, he's found it pretty easy, got this good job. I know you've worked your ass off. Yeah. I know you've had some challenging times. Yeah. So it's the, the B-side. And, and if we can pull that back to one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is to learn from people, mm. not just from the, the, the good times, but the challenging times. Yeah. And I look back in my life, Ed, and, you know, I went through, I had cancer a number of years ago, yeah. a marriage breakdown, had a few highs and lows in a business. And at the time, it's it's you think I'm not going to get out of it. Yeah. I know for some people listening, you sometimes think, oh, this is the hardest thing I've ever gone through. Mm. But I look back at those most challenging times, it's when I've had the most growth. Oh, I'm a much better coach, friend, partner, yeah. dad, Parent everything because I've had the A side and the B side. Couldn't it, it's very hard, and particularly as a, a performer like you have been over the years, and you know to to empathise with people that are going through depression, if you haven't seen what that emotion looks like, is basically impossible. You know what I used to do, and I'm I'm embarrassed to say. I'd be working with clients and athletes, and they'd say I'm depressed, I've got anxiety, and I'd go to models. 
I'd, I'd actually go to models that I'd learned in psychology. Mm. When you go through challenge, you don't go through models, you go through feelings. Yeah, you look emotion. at someone and say, mate, yeah. I get it. Mm. I understand how you're feeling. Yep. So much richer. Yeah. And, and to be able to say, you know what, this might not work for you, but one thing that I found that really helped me is X, Y, and Z. And that's why mentoring is such an important and having a range of mentors, not having one person that constantly feeds you up stuff. And mm. that's why having a great network is so important and you only get that from doing a whole heap of different things. If you're only in one kind of vertical talking to the same people, you're going to get the same answers. And mm. so to actually look outside and look wide to find mentors that might be able to empathise with your current situation, whatever that might be, high or low, I think is super important. It is. And I was talking to Paul Ruse and Ruse was saying, it's not just a physical mentor and this was a shift for me. Like, you know, I will come to you and Ed and say, hey, I want to learn about compounding capital. Can you teach me? So mentor from the Latin word mentore to be like, I want to be like you and what you're doing. That's often where we find a mentor. But Paul said, mentor can be a book or you can watch a movie about someone as well. So it's not just a, a face-to-face physical mentor you can learn from other people. Oh, without doubt. Oh, well, when that you don't know. We are going into um, territory here that we might not emerge from. But there is no, it is my view, there is no better time ever in the history of humankind to learn than the one we live in at the moment. You can listen to podcasts on two times speed. You can sign up to a university course in another country and get a degree, formal learning. There's informal learning of listening to conversations on Clubhouse or Twitter or, you know, like there are great people who are essentially providing mentoring-like services for free all around the world and if you have your eyes open and your ears open, you can upskill yourself in basically anything. You're not very passionate about this topic on mentoring, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Where do you go for inspiration? Do you have a book? Do you have a poem? Do you have a story? Do you have a place? Not really. Might be. uh, I I think my inspiration, I I take it from a whole range of different energy sources. I take it from the people around me mainly. and, And, you know, you mentioned my wife who, you know, not same illness as my mum but had been ill, you know, in the last couple of years. So I take inspiration from her and her resilience with her journey. Take inspiration with from my brother and his business partners how much they are passionate about their roles in, in the world and, and their, the business they're creating. I take energy from you on a Thursday morning. So, th- th- again, it's they're not mentors but all these people that I have in my life and I've only got so much energy to give mm-hmm. I'm taking energy from other sources of from you know trusted sources that I, that I that, that I choose to spend my time with, and so, do, so the do biggest you consciously that, that's a really interesting one because energy is contagious, it can go well, up or it, can well, go it down, and it can transfer, yeah. yeah, for sure. So, I mean, as as you know, the one finite resource that we have in our life is time, and so who I choose to spend my time with on a regular basis, I can control, and those I only choose to spend people that help refill my energy stores. Mm. They, they don't know that they are, but when we go to the beach at 6 o'clock on a Thursday morning, you are re- recharging my emotional stores by helping me with X, Y, and Z. I, you might have a question for me. You know, like so it's a two-way street. I'm not sucking energy out of you, but it's a, a transfer of, of energy that I get from people. Mm. So maybe I didn't know the answer when I started answering the question, but I realised it midway through. It's from lots of different areas. 
I've asked you lots of questions. I've found out a lot about you today. We've spoken about you, your personality, what drives you. We've spoken about cricket. We've spoken about coffee. We've spoken about compounding <laughs> businesses. Is there a question you would like me to ask you in finishing or is there a question you would like to ask me? Wow. Uh, a question that I'm happy. I'm always happy to answer any question, but I don't know. You can, you can let I it through. Yeah, I think the question I might ask you is what is your personal mission? That's a good question. I've spent some time focusing on this recently. So purpose is more of a statement and then I'll get to mission. So my purpose is waking people up to a better way of living, working and leading so that they reach their full potential. So what is my my mission? It's to work with individuals, it's to work with companies, teams, my kids, family, and, and to have people optimising, you can say potential, but just to be living better, happier and healthier. And you, and you take, I mean, it's clear that you take energy from that. Absolutely. And I've realised that recently, going back to sport, uh, I haven't been in sport for 10 years and I'm loving it. And, and like you, very similar in some ways, you're a lot more intelligent and smarter, Um but I draw energy from different areas. So I think that the universal approach on all of it is getting experience, working with wonderful people in different industries. You know, some in business, some uh, some of the work I'm doing that I'm getting the most out of is working with you know, people that need a hand mm. and, and you know, don't have a lot of money and want some support and want some structure and goal setting. But the red thread through me is seeing people in a better place. Love it. Where can people you make me get all goosebumpy now? <laughs> uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, about your podcast, yeah. and where can they connect? Your Twitter profile yeah. is actually quite interesting. Let me read out what your Twitter profile. <laughs> is. That's probably a good play. I mean, that's probably where I'm most active. More uh, Sam Seenborn than Josh Lyman. Do you know what reference that? I eat mangoes in the shower. Humanist. Yeah. Go to bed dreaming of golf. I do go to bed dreaming of golf. Do you, are you getting the Sam Seaborn reference? West, no. The West Wing. Josh Lyman and Sam Seaborn from the West Wing. Deep. Uh, Twitter's a good – I mean, if, if people are wanting to get in touch, Twitter's a good spot or LinkedIn probably. Um, Give me the handles. At Eddie Cowan. E-D-D-I-E-C-O-W-A-N. Yeah, and LinkedIn you'll find me or you can go through TDM Growth Partners company webpage and you'll see me there. And Oh yeah, well the, yeah, the podcast you'll you'll see all that action. I mean, basically my Twitter feed is you know podcast snippets. So you know between those two sources, you'll you'll be able to find scaling up. It's if you are, I mean, it's not for everyone, but if you are a business owner or you're inspired by people who have built wonderful things, then I think you know there are a few lessons to be. Even learned. if you're not a business owner, listen to it. It's good. There's a risk when you interview someone you know well that you have a cognitive bias and you have a similar conversation to what you have in a coffee shop. That hasn't happened to no. me. So thank you for being you. Thank you for being authentic. Uh, and thank you for sharing wonderful messages. And I said at the start, I'm going to give you a hug. I'd love a and hug. Boy from Belmont. Thanks, mate. It's a big move. Because every time I see you, I do give you a hug. And can you remember when you first did it? I was like that. I think <laughs> I kept doing it. Mate, share the love. So thank you. <laughs> Ed, for sharing the love. Don't be silly. You've been wonderful to me over many, many years, Andrew, so it's the very least I can do. Hey, it's Andrew, and we hope you enjoyed that episode. We would really appreciate it if you helped us amplify the Stride Stronger with Andrew May podcast 
by sharing episodes with colleagues and friends and going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help us get this message out to a wider audience. And if you would like to know more about how Strive Stronger uplifts teams through optimizing human performance and well-being, make sure you check out strivestronger.com. And if you'd like to know more about my personal practice, focusing on all things human performance, go to andrewmade.com where you can explore the books I have written, including MadsFit, which has now sold over 85,000 copies, or book me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite. Or if you'd like to really turbocharge your business and personal success and wake up to a better way of living, working and leading, check out my brand new evidence-based Human Performance Academy that starts in July. I'm really, really looking forward to getting that going. And if you'd like to receive regular updates from me each month, make sure you subscribe to my monthly e-newsletter, the AM edition.